My particular interest, as as you know, like, uh, just mentioned there in Ballymote, can be dated back to around 2003, when as part of the collaboration between the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies and the Library of the Royal Irish Academy, the Irish Script on Screen project was digitising some of the great books uh, held by this equally great library. It was the third in the sequence of near-contemporary manuscripts that included the Lord Black and the Book of Lecan. And at the time, due to their size, and I remember this particularly with, with, uh, with regard to Ballymote, uh, these books presented photographic uh, challenges, technical challenges, particularly with regard to depth of field. Due to technical developments since then, such matters would not present uh, problems today. But I recall at the time that the sheer size of these books in extent and format crystallized in the minds of those of us involved in the endeavor, the magnitude of the task of the presentation of Irish manuscripts in digital format, which the project had set itself. Contributing to the sense of challenge and the sense of occasion is something that remains fresh uh, today, and that is the simple fact of being in the presence of a magnificent book, something that the digital process cannot convey and may never capture. In the case of Ballymote, this is enhanced by the fact that in the preservation of the front and back boards, we are looking at a remnant of a binding that may date from late medieval times, contributing to the fact that despite loss of leaves at a number of locations, this is still one of the most intact books to survive from the late medieval period. As recently as a few weeks ago, through the kindness of, of Siobhan and, and her staff, I was able to examine the book at my leisure, and I was again struck by its uh, physical size, the bulk of this book. Uh, which I'm vain enough to think might be in some might in some way replicate the reaction um, of all of those over the centuries who, who have gazed on it in admiration. This would probably include A. O'Donnell, who valued the book at 140 milk cows in 1522. When one considers the average dairy herd in Ireland in 2014 is 60 cows, uh, with a value of around between somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 euro per cow, one can readily understand the value placed on the book roughly 150 years after its writing. In contemporary terms, we may compare the 20 cows, a sixth of the rent of Ormond, paid by the Earl of Kildare in 1500, for a specialist medical manuscript <coughs> of uh, 176 pages. We know of the valuation of the Book of Ballymote from the somewhat uh, bombastic uh, uh, note that uh, Ray referred to just now, um, contained on folio 180 recto, filling out the lower half of the first column of the folio. See it there and it's magnified on the right. <coughs> uh, the remainder of which has been left, uh, left blank by Solovo Drummer. This note with its disparaging reference to Macdonough as an ignorant man, the, brings us to the first general point that has been made about the Book of Ballymote, namely the quantity and variety of later notes and comments that it contains, mainly in its margins. This is an exception. Such marginalia are one stratum of the archaeology of any manuscript and mean that Ballymote conforms in type to many other Irish manuscripts in bearing the signs of ownership, readership and general use over the centuries. Thus we are enabled, generally speaking, to trace the book from Sligo to Donegal in the early 16th century, to Dublin in the 17th century, and after its removal from Dublin to Drogheda, where it was signed by Tommaso Dernin at a number of points in 1769, eventually back into the hands of Charles O'Connor, via the Chevalier O'Gorman for a four or five year spell between 1777 to 1781, 
during which period the results are signed by O'Connor's fellow scholars and contemporaries, General Valancey and Tygo Flanago and Theophilus O'Flanagan. Of all who put their name or their comments in the book, there's no doubt that Charles O'Connor was the most productive, glossing texts throughout, as was his wont, providing an introduction to the background of the manuscript, and providing what he himself in that introduction termed leading titles in English at the incipits of texts in the manuscript. While some might frown on such practices today, in truth, O'Connor's participation in the manuscript is now part of the fabric of the book and part of its history. In their own way, those titles to the texts entitle us to, to add O'Connor to the list of numerous scholars who made lists of contents of the manuscript in the 18th and early 19th century. There are a number of enigmas about the history of Ballymote in the second half of the 18th century. For instance, the question of its, of its presence in Carrignavar, County Cork, remains a moot one. It arises from a page written in January 1808 by Michal Ogle in an academy manuscript on which he gives the contents or floor of Lord Blackfigay uh, which is, um, is to be equated with the Book of Ballymote. Having given the list of contents, Michal Ogue says that the book was in his father's possession in Carrigan in 1767, but that he does not know where it is now. Dr. Mavie New Ordel notes that Michal MacPazzo, that's uh, Michal Ogue's father, was in Dublin for a time during the 1750s. It could be that the list of contents and other material taken from Ballymote by Michal may have been made in Dublin rather than in Carrigan while confusion in the title Lord Black the Gergon of the book with that of the Lord Black proper, which was indeed in Cork, could have led Michal Ogue to equate one with the other in his note in the Academy manuscript, it's hard to gain say his claim that his father had the book in Carignavar in 1767. Yet one detail that might incline us to take the view that Michal Ogue may have been mistaken is the fact that the list of contents does not derive from any direct observation of the book itself by Michal MacPadlet, but it is rather a version of a list dated 1726 and found in two copies in a manuscript by E.O. Dalla, one by Tyago Nachten, from which Olongoyne's description derives. Another enigma is the possession of Ballymote uh, by Tommaso Dernin in uh, Drogheda in 1769, already mentioned. According to James Hardiman, or Dernin had been a clerk at the flour mills in, Cl in Crumlin County, Antrim. Ordinin's hand is more in evidence in the margins of the manuscript than has been noted in the RIA catalogue. His efforts consist primarily of a sequence of marginal glosses on words in, uh, to the various texts, glosses that pervade the entire manuscript and show that Ordinin must have read large sections of the book, if not the book in its entirety. The few fragments of this man's work uh, that survive elsewhere show him to have been interested in contemporary Northern literature. And this is true particularly of the 16 leaves that occur significantly perhaps in Charles O'Connor's scrapbook. One of these is a fragment of verse ascribed to P.O.D., which makes one wonder why Seamus O'Cossida's short note, uh, published in the Irish Book uh, Lover in 1732, asking whether there might have been a family connection between Tomás O'Dernin and his namesake, the poet Pedro O'Dernin, has never been followed up. The latest of the jottings in Ballymote appears to have been inserted after the manuscript had reached the safe haven of the Academy Library. It's uh, in an unsigned uh, rhyming comment on, one of, uh, an, on an earlier comment by Tommaso Dernin, and it occurs in a blank space on 408. The later comment was identified by O'Curry and followed by the RIA cataloger Kathleen Mulcrone as being in the hand of Owen Connellan which points to a date in the 1830s when Connellan was engaged in making a complete transcript of Ballymote as he had done of the Book of Lecan, which he completed in 1831. Both transcripts are held in the Royal Library at Windsor Castle, 
and the background to them is explained in notes appended to the printed introduction that Carnellan had prefixed, prefixed uh, to the Lekin transcript, which showed that he was employed by George IV and uh, completed the transcript of Ballymote in, uh, just after the accession of Queen Victoria. So they're in, they're in the li Royal Library, two complete transcripts of, of, of Lekin and, and Ballymote are in, in, in Windsor Castle. In the context of the history of the Irish book, mention must also be made of the facsimile of the Book of Ballymote that was produced as the fourth in the Royal Irish Academy series. The earlier three, Lauren Heed, Lauren Black, and uh, Lauren Lyon, uh, you'll find the last of which was, was printed in, in uh, 1880. The Academy scribe Joseph O'Longoin, the son of Michal Og and grandson of Michal MacPadot, had been involved in the making of those three facsimiles, but having, having died in the year of the publication of the LL facsimile, that's 1880, and shortly after starting work on Ballymote, no complete transcript of uh, Ballymote existed, uh, a complete facsimile transcript, uh, in order to form the basis for the Ballymote facsimile. And for that reason, and with patient reluctance, as uh, Atkinson explains in the preface, it was necessary to adopt photography as the only available means for the speedy publication of this great manuscript. With the undoubted advantage of securing a faithful representation of the Ipsissima Verba of the manuscript, the photographic facsimile is also more fatiguing to read than the unblurred leaves of LL. It's not really any lack of focus that present problems for the readers of the facsimile, however, because the photographic quality of the plates is generally quite good particularly given the times in which this innovatory publication took place, but rather the fact that the margins of the manuscript have in many cases been cropped from the photographs, thus presenting an unsatisfactory representation of the great book. This should not, however, detract from this being the first photographic facsimile of a complete Irish manuscript. Although there are obvious gaps in the chronology, it's therefore quite clear that without ever leaving the book, without ever going outside it, the non-scribal notes and jottings provide a framework that allows us to um, glimpse a, a history of continuous interaction with the manuscript down to near modern times. They also prevent us, uh, present us, uh, would, um, allow us to, to, to view the book, as we may many medieval codices, as an organism that re renews itself over the centuries and that enriches and informs the ages through which it passes in its later history. Turning to the scribal notes themselves, these, as we know, identify contributions by Makshiha or Drummond or Dagenon. They also record the writing of one early portion of the book in the house of Thomas MacDonagh, as has been mentioned already, and a late portion in the house of Donald MacAgoin. If we take these names and locations and look at them in the context of other manuscripts surviving the 14th and early 15th century, it enables us to view the makers of, of the Book of Ballymote as part of a network of learned men who gravitated towards uh, what we may loosely term the Shannon Corridor, from Lough Derrick to Lough Allen, and contiguous areas west and east. Some of the family names that we encounter making books at this time we will not meet again in that capacity in the later Middle Ages. No doubt this is due to a combination of manuscript survival, for we've lost an awful lot, and the vagaries of the formation, maintenance, and survival of learned dynasties. Part of such foundations must have involved the creation of family libraries, and it's probably no coincidence that a feature of such 14th century manuscripts as survive is the creation of books either by members of learned families for their own use or the making of books by third parties for them. For example, Sean O'Keonon writes the genealogical gathering that is now the first part of Ronson B506 for Ovo O'Keonon, who himself wrote, as we know, uh, National Library G2 and 3 for his own use. The second part of Ronson B506 was written, it is suggested, for Brian MacAgoin, all of them the Jeffrey Imrahovnus, who 
whose death is recorded in 1390. The most memorable example of this phenomenon, one mentioned earlier this morning by Nolig, is that of Galisa Makirvishig, who uh, writes the Book of Lekin and his part of the composite manuscript known as the Yellow Book of Lekin as an heirloom for himself and his posterity. It's worth observing in passing that this mention of the manuscript as an heirloom, a shale finnel, points up a constant theme in the making of these books, that is, the high value placed on them by their creators. Sean O'Keanon makes his gathering for all of on condition that he gives it to nobody else. He doesn't lend it, in other words. Similarly, Foyalon Macaronishkale makes the beautiful gathering in Umana, uh, Laurivana, for his friend, Dahirna Karad Kumpanik, Bishop Murahatiko Kawa, on similar conditions that he doesn't give it away. Foyalon's production of this quaternion is mirrored in the work of his kinsman, Macram Macaronishkale, who wrote what is largely a genealogical manuscript for his own companion, Macaronpanach Fein. Gilderwain and Machain, Corb of Lulla, sometime between the years 1369 and 1400. Given this evidence of scribal value of the books that they produced, it's no surprise that great codices were used as ransoms or that Eodonal would value Ballymote at the modern equivalent of two dairy herds. It's reflections such as these about the nature of the book and of book production that lead naturally to inquiries about the nature of patronage in the context of the writing of these manuscripts. It's just one of the many aspects of the history of the Irish book that remain largely unexplored. But the general observation may be made, from what survives, that patronage of Irish manuscripts up to the 17th century is an area of uh, uncertainty. The personal or familial manuscript is much more easily identified among the surviving corpus of late medieval manuscripts than is the manuscript created expressly at the behest of a patron. There are, of course, outstanding and obvious patrons' manuscripts from the 15th century, Donnery, for example, or the great collections such as Arthur Rath or the White Earl's Book of Lismore, Fermoy, and so on. But I would contend from the surviving evidence that these constitute a minority of books. Our idea of the manuscript patron may be conditioned by what we know of the patronage of bardic poems and also perhaps influenced by the tradition in medieval and Renaissance Europe of the wealthy magnet uh, patronizing art and decorated books. In the latter case, it should be pointed out that such patrons had, ex had access to professional scribes, which profession was unknown in late medieval Ireland, where the making of books was an adjunct occupation arising from the fact that the writer specialized in a particular area of learning. There was another type of patronage, however, which might be termed subsistence patronage, and that took the form of sponsorship, the provision of food and board, while a manuscript or part thereof was being written. And this may have been the prevalent form of book patronage in late medieval Ireland. Of the dozen or so manuscripts that can be assigned in whole or in part to the 14th century, only very few show signs of being conceived as patrons' manuscripts in the sense that individuals outside of the scholarly community were the intended recipients of the finished item. One of the earliest must be the Book of McGowden, the Tuanra compiled for Thomas McGowden before his death in 1343. Another one may be Lauro where, however, other than uh, the bishop, archbishop and the fact that the manuscript remained in Ocala possession until the 18th century, the actual recipient of the, of the entire manuscript, if there was such a patron, is less than certain. At least the evidence of Lauro suggests that, that the elements of fraternal and formal patronage were not necessarily mutually exclusive. And another example is the Book of Ballymote. The evidence for this rests largely on the note, uh, the note of exchange dated 1522, uh, still up on the screen, which records the book as being in the possession of MacDonagh at this time. 
the note therefore elucidates the earlier scribal reference to the manuscript being written in the house of Tumultach MacTaig. But a manuscript being written in someone's house is no guarantee that the finished book was intended for the householder, which is why we need the 1522 note as support for the proposition that MacDonagh was the book's patron, or at least its eventual owner. Without that, one would have to take the conflicting reference in the very final gatherings to talk about three being completed by Manasa Daigonon in the house of Donald MacAgain, in conjunction with the claim by the same Manas in the fourth gathering to be Farron Lowersha, the owner of this book. The relatively orderly and regular collation of the Book of Ballymote, which we'll look at in a minute, is mirrored in turn in the orderly arrangement of its contents, as many of the speakers have already said. The earlier gatherings dealing with the origins and fundamental knowledge, origins of the world, of the Geisel, Christian kings, four provinces, leading into wisdom texts, genealogies, history of the Britons, Irish saints, biblical history, origin of names, cycle of the kings, Lauren Agart, the Lord of Women, poets and prosody, Lord of Places, and culminating in the five final gatherings uh, containing translated classical texts. It should be hard to think of a collection of texts that more comprehensively defines Shanachas than this. Like other manuscripts of the time, this continues the trends and emphases of the few books in Irish that survive from the 12th century, and that establish what we might call the matter of Ireland, which is recycled and redefined in manuscripts throughout the late medieval period. These Shanachas manuscripts, deceptively miscellaneous in their contents, are the all-embracing encyclopedias of late medieval Ireland. Looking at their contents, as exemplified by the Book of Ballymote, we can appreciate the remarks of Andwaltach Machirvishik many years later, where he explains the preeminence of the Olivan Shanachish by providing this definition of Shanachas. Since it is Shanachas that contains the true knowledge of the earth and every knowledge known to people throughout the whole world, though it would be difficult to find one person who possessed, who possessed all that knowledge. Gachfis is all the reign of Andown Vorila. It should not be thought that the miscellany was the exclusive preserve of the Shanacha or his, uh, at this time, yet it seems to be the case that his worldview and that of his manuscripts is what gives to these books their miscellaneous appearance and their general attraction and what makes them among the most frequently created type of book in late medieval Ireland. It's no wonder, therefore, that the makers of these books should in turn be in demand for the creation of other types of book also. Dunri, for example, from the Book of Magaudan, which is an Okeanon manuscript in part, or at least, down to the Maguire Dunri at the end of the 16th century, which is an Oclater book. If all we had then was the Book of Ballymote, we'd be able to see that the Shenacha is at the same time a specialist and a factotum. He's the keeper of all knowledge on which the social order depends. His knowledge of origins, as expressed most visibly, perhaps, through genealogical material, is used as a basis for rightful leadership or kingship, which in turn dovetails with texts such as Tagusil Cormac and Lower Nagarth. This gives to his profession and his books a broadly moral aspect, and uh, Elizabeth Boyle referred to this yesterday, which in the 15th century would pick up on the tone of the 12th century manuscripts like Elu and Ronson B502, where Shanachas texts are associated with overtly religious material and all are seen as part of a unit. And the Irish book of Shanachas therefore takes on the status of a model portfolio. It's one of the subtleties of the book of Ballymote that items such as biblical history and saints genealogies merge seamlessly with more secular material in acknowledgement of the unified discipline that is Shanachas. Turning to the physical structure of the manuscript, and there's a, there's a handout on this in, somewhere in, in your package, I think. Uh, with regard to the arrangement of, of the, the way the book was made, with regard to the arrangement of the skins, 
initial investigation suggests, with the exception of the outer bifolia of gatherings, there appears to be no consistency one way or the other in matching the size of the vellum. In other words, most gatherings begin and end on the hair side, which gives many gatherings their outer uh, shiny appearance at the front and back. And this feature can be of use in confirming the collation. Many gatherings therefore begin hair side down. But thereafter, the pattern isn't regular, neither flesh side to flesh side nor hair side down throughout, unlike Lekin, where the general pattern is that of hair side down in, in the later sections. An outstanding example of hair on hair at the juncture of gatherings is that of 187, 100, uh, 187 verse 188 recto, uh, which is the end of gathering 29 and the beginning of gathering 30, which also marks a break between uh, two texts, one on, on prosody and the beginning of the Dinhanachus, and a break between uh, scribal uh, stints between Odroma and Odaigonon. The relative dark and shiny appearance of these two pages is what one would expect from hair on hair, but it may have been augmented by additional handling if it were the case that these sections of the manuscript were in fact extractable. Turning to the beginning of the book, to the frontispiece. In the context of the physical structure, it's hard to avoid con uh, consideration uh, of this. One of the most memorable and bibliographically, innovative, uh, bibliographically innovative features of the Book of Ballymote, a picture that scholars have traditionally, since O'Curry's time at least, interpreted as Noah with his family in the ark that has come to rest in the mountains of Ararat or the mountains of Armenia, whichever. Recently, this interpretation has been challenged most impressively by one of our speakers here, Dr. Karen Ralph. And Karen suggests, uh, and I'm mentioning this with her permission because I know she's going to be talking about this later on, she suggests in her publication that if this is the ark, then it is out of kilter with other medieval representations of the story. She, she, she suggests instead that it, it rather might be an attempt at a depiction of, of uh, Tumultuch Machdunche, supposed patron of the manuscript. And Dr. Ralph invo invokes an amount of art historical detail in support of this, of this uh, contention and I believe her arguments deserve uh, consideration, serious consideration. For my part, I, I'm still a Noah man. I feel, I feel that the Noah interpretation still has something to recommend it, uh, be it in the dove that's uh, sitting, uh, that you're coming, arriving there with the, with the uh, branch, or, or the, the location of the ship uh, on top of the mountains. And uh, the fact that the image was, must have been facing, even though we're missing uh, the first folio from the book, must have been facing the text that actually mentions uh, Noah's Ark before going into the list of, uh, of his descendants. But uh, what I really want to draw attention to is, is this down here. You see that there? That you could, might take that to be a smudge. In fact, and this isn't going to work because I had a look at it a minute ago on the, on the screen, it's not coming out greatly. That's a, a drawing of a, that's a, that's a, drawing of a, of, of, of a character. So you're going to have to take my word for this. I'm looking at a fairly a clear, a clear picture here. Can you see it? Oh, fair enough. Right. Shaky hand and all. Here we go. This character, there's his eyebrows, uh, two eyes. He's got two horns on the top of his head. He's got a wing, at least one, going back that way. And here we you see his arm, and he's holding a club in his hand, or a huddle if you come from Tipperary. <laughs> uh, you see the club, yeah? Yeah, go out, great. I'm delighted. I thought it was kind of half invisible up there. It's quite quite clear down here. It seems to me that this malevolent-looking individual is an, is a representation of the devil. 
And it gives the picture uh, of, of Noah's Ark, and I haven't seen anyone commenting on this, a different, a totally different aspect. One that looks away, it seems to me, from the sex hattes and the lower wall, the text that it faces, and connects the picture with the wider world of folklore and apocryphal tradition, connecting the devil uh, with Noah and Noah's wife. And I, I leave it there for the moment. But the boat depicted, to go back to our uh, original image, is uh, as uh, shown an excellent uh, adaptation of it long ago by uh, the great Tim O'Neill. Um, is uh, um, taken to be a, a cog, a, a type of vessel known as a cog, which, according to a nautical archaeologist, declined in use after the 14th century. For that reason, the drawing of the ark may be contemporary. There has to be some doubt about this, however, it, because the drawing is, has been executed on a, a palimpsest. Uh, perhaps not a true palimpsest, but there appears to be writing on the page at a number of points that has been rubbed with varying success. And this combined with a set of perforations along the top and uh, the outer and the lower, um, uh, the lower uh, margins, the edges, in fact, um, uh, points to the fact, and, and, and the fact that this piece of vellum is very inferior to all the other vellum uh, in, used in the book, uh, that this is a piece of recycled material on which the arc has been drawn. I think that's fairly clear. Even if its execution and insertion are later than the date of composition of the manuscript and later than the currency of the cog, it would still have given a sense of antiquity, I suppose, to the picture by representing Noah, uh, if that's what it is, as sailing in an obsolete or obsolescent vessel. In the late medieval and early modern period, prior to 1600, the frontispiece occurs very rarely in Irish manuscripts. I can think of only two examples, and even Dr. Eamon Nikonakou has um, suggested a possible third to me. Um, one is the Rotula in the frontispiece to the famous astronomical, uh, astronomical tract in uh, an academy manuscript here. And the second is the equally famous portrait of Colum Killa, according as a frontispiece to Ronson B. 514. Um, that, uh, that manuscript uh, dating from roughly the mid 16th century, at a time presumably when the Book of Ballymote still formed part of the Iran Library, uh, to which it had been added by Manus O'Donnell's father and predecessor. By this time, of course, an additional influence would have been the emergence of the frontispiece as a feature of the printed book. But in truth, we have no way of knowing if, in fact, the addition of the Valley Mote frontispiece can be dated so, so late. Uh, moving into the, into the body of the book then, and looking at the collation proper, we need to consider uh, this in, in light of uh, Thomas O'Concanning's article of 1981 on the scribes. He said, in the present state, Valley Mote cannot be subjected to examination of the makeup and sequence of its gatherings but the order of its contents would suggest that it still maintains its origin, its original arrangement. And again, through the good offices of, of Siobhan and her staff, and I, may I digress for a moment to, to say that I don't know any library anywhere where you, when you walk in the door, you get a sense of scholarship. You get a sense of real active scholarship. And rather than people stopping you looking at books, they can't, they, they can't do enough for you here. So when so when Siobhan looks for looks for support, <laughs> so when Siobhan looks for support, uh, we take that seriously and we we, we give what we can. So anyway, due to due to um, to that that kind of help that I got here uh, over a couple of weeks, I was able to establish the collation. Uh, which I presented in draft format, and I stress draft because there's still things that I haven't been, I haven't been able to figure out whether lacuna, a lacuna in a text actually corresponds to a chasm, um, a bibliographic chasm in the manuscript. It will, be, it will be seen from this general layout in any case that the dominant unit 
In the making of this book is the gathering of ten, and there are 16 of those, followed by the gathering of eight, of which there are six units. This is more or less what we would expect from books at the time, a mixture of the keen, the quinion, or the gathering of ten, and the caderna, the, the quaternion, or the gathering of eight. Unfortunately, we do not yet possess comprehensive data for the collation of Irish medieval manuscripts, but one can say, for instance, that the structure of Ballymote is comparable uh, to near contemporary manuscripts such as the Lower Black and the Lower Omana, the composition of which is, is known. The Lower Black has an identical ratio of tens to, eight, uh, tens to eights, as in Ballymote, while Lower Omana, in Lower Omana, the dominant unit is the gathering of eight. As regards the 28 singletons surviving in the manuscript, uh, unless as they stand, they are clearly part of the gathering, as in gatherings one to eight in the handout. These are presented here as you, on the layout as units that occur outside of the body of the gathering, though in most cases they would have been acquired uh, with either the following or more, or more usually the preceding gathering. One of the valuable aspects of Richard Tipper's, uh, Tipper's almost complete transcript uh, of 1727 referred to earlier is that it shows that such loss of leaves as, as is detectable in the book took place for the most part after Tipper's time that is in the second half of the 18th century, in other words, a token perhaps of how much the book was moved around during that period. There are only four places in the manuscript where that chasm is, is reflected in the transcript, or at least where a lacuna, and uh, all the other leaves were lost after, after uh, Tipper's, uh, Tipper making his transcript. A total of 12 leaves uh, um, were lost, in fact, at that time, which, which is not a huge quantity given, given the size of the book. Because of the nature of the material being copied, uh, long genealogical tracts, for example, the feature of the self-contained gathering fronted by a significant text observable in other manuscripts is not present here. Only three gatherings, in fact, could be removed without leaving obvious chasms. That's gatherings 23, 24, and the final one, the Alexander gathering, 39. We do, however, have groups of gatherings where a series of texts begin with a, uh, on the rectory of the first folio of the first gathering in the sequence and end on the verse of the final folio of the group of, of gatherings. And these may be taken as forming units uh, on their own, uh, as follows, seven, gathering 7 to 9, 10 and 11, 12 and 13, 14 to 17, 18 to 20, 21 and 22, 26 to 29, 30 to 33, 34 and 35, 36 to 38. It's a testimony to the extent of collaboration between the scribes that only four of these textual units, either single or complex, can be attributed to the work of a scribe working alone. Makshi'i gathering 79 and Odaigonon 10 to 11, Odroma 36 to 38, and of course the final, the final Odaigonon gathering. The identification of these sets of gatherings as units helps, helps us to understand why when the book of Ballymo became available to 18th century scholars in, 17, in the 1720s, they refer to it as being comprised of laurev, of books. Inspection of the collation, therefore, serves to emphasize the element of cooperation between the, the named scribes, and this is especially acute in those parts of the book where gatherings are shared. There are four instances of this, but I'm not, I don't have time to go into them here. But these four instances of inquiry collaboration support what one would conclude from an examination of the paleography, that the writers of the Book of Ballymote were working in concert together on this huge project. And it therefore reinforces Tomaso Concanning's conclusions. And again, I want to pay tribute to Tomaso Concanning, to, to whose work a lot of, so many of us are, are indebted, uh, his conclusions with regard to the collaboration in the writing of the texts. As indicated on the plan of the collation, uh, the opening gathering uh, presents as a gathering of eight, wanting one and eight, and three with three an additional singleton. So that's the first gathering. <coughs> 
The excision of the first leaf of the book is one that drew the observation from François Henri that it must have been stolen because of some handsome initial. If so, we know from Tipper's copy that it must have been the letter initial letter S of the opening uh, sentence of Sex Itatis Sunk Monday. From the fact that the text uh, survives in this transcript, we can deduce that the, this, this is one of the pages that was excised after uh, 1727. We know that folio, uh, folio 3 there is a singleton because there's a folded stub uh, visible between uh, uh, gathering uh, 47 and 8. Uh, the fact that it appears folded and it's folded back in itself suggests to me that, that his conjugate has not been excised, but rather that this is a, that this is a true singleton. Françoise Henri suggested otherwise, however. She said that folio 3 uh, did have a conjugate and that it contained an, an, an illustration facing the opening page of Lord Gawala, which begins on folio 8. If there was an excision at this point, it would, of course, make the, make the first gathering a 10 and would be in keeping with the dominant structure of the book. But as I say, there's no sign that this, that this was actually cut out, rather that, 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 this, that the tree is, is, a true, is a true singleton. The same authors also suggest that the missing uh, folio 9 um, uh, was also excised, uh, probably because uh, it proved too tempting for a collector. In this case, however, it's clear that this was the, a, a textual folio. There was no decoration whatsoever on it, as Richard Tipper was able to transcribe its contents in 1727, so we know what was on the page. As uh, folio 9 was conjugated with folio 1, as you, as you can see there, um, the excision of the latter would have loosened uh, the conjugate. If you cut out 1, 9 becomes loose, and it could fall away like that. Or, alternatively, if the, gather, if this, uh, if the whole gathering was, was extractable, uh, you could just take the, the, uh, the first, uh, the, the bifolium itself. Moving to the final gathering, uh, which uh, written according to O'Connor entirely by uh, O'Daigonon, which I call the Alexander Gathering, that contains the history and the epistle within a single unit. The structure of the gathering, again, is, a, is an outer bifolium, but this contains within it a four and a two, as you can see there, a double bifolium there and, and a single bifolium. Uh, there and uh, this is, I think, is, is significant because firstly it's, it suggests uh, an uncertainty on the part of the scribe as to how much uh, vellum it's going to uh, take to finish the book, which is the second point that this gathering is what it was intended to be. It was intended to be the final gathering, and so they're anxious to finish this up here. There's not going to be any singleton um, tacked on at the back of it. And thirdly, perhaps that the epistle, uh, which uh, can be uh, occupies uh, from the end of, of 275, uh, it ends on 275, uh, begins on 274 verso, um, that that's actually a, a filler text rather than um, uh, a, main, a main text. And there you see 275 has been cut away, that's where the text finishes, and it's been um, cut away uh, more or less uh, piecemeal. And this is a feature uh, of, of some uh, gatherings that occur elsewhere uh, in, in, in Ballymote. In, in, this, in this section, in 274 and 267, our pieces are cut away, blank pieces are cut away for, for reuse. I take it perhaps uh, at a later time. Um, and what it does uh, is it points up uh, what I, seems to me to be an important element of the Book of Ballymote and, and one that links in with the Book of Black, and, and that is the use of space or the, or the non-use of space. And we see many examples of that uh, in the Book of Ballymote. Um, 
two typical uh, examples occurring at 62 verse, uh, there's a typical example occurring at 62 verse, so here the scribe brings an end to the shield mother the section of gene genealogies by adding contemporary information, Lua Ianlisha, that culminates in the reference to the to Trail Ho being king of Connacht and, and the manuscript being written in the house of Thomas of Mattaig. This is not really a colophon. on what it is, is the text just peters out and uh, they leave, uh, the rest of the page is, is, left, is left blank and in fact in some instances another blank will, will follow it in anticipation of, for, of further material being added. There's another example of it and another one there of a text beginning um, on the retro of, of, a, of a leaf but on the, on, the, on the second column anticipating material being added from the previous gathering and continuing for one column here but it, it, ne it, it never was. The leaving of uh, blank spaces gives an unfinished aspect to the book in places but more importantly it shows us the, that the availability of writing material may not have been a concern for those involved. The history of the Irish book tells us that, generally speaking, scribes abhor blank spaces within the text frame, and filler items abound in such situations in order to maximise the use of the valuable material that was vellum. But in these instances, in, 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 in Ballymote, this is not the case. So what the collation shows us then is that we have a series of gatherings of texts providing evidence for a concentration of planning and continuous cooperation, and probably consultation between the makers of, of, of this great book. If you'll indulge me for a couple of minutes, uh, I just want to address the question in the previous, uh, at the end of the previous lecture in this way. The value placed on the book in 1522 should not really surprise us. It's by any standards a formidable codex. Charles O'Connor's um, annotations not, notwithstanding, of all the traditional scholars who came into contact with the Book of Ballymote up to and including the 19th century, I believe that later scholars are, are uh, most indebted to uh, Eugene O'Curry. To his analysis of the manuscript and it's on display in one of the um, display cabinets over there, is due the number of blank parchment leaves that were inserted to mark chasms uh, as he perceived them when the manuscript was rebound in the 19th century, rebacked, they kept the boards. Unlike any of us here today, O'Curry was a custodian of and a participant in the tradition to which he was also providing scholarly commentary. And I think that's, that's important. He, he was, it could be wrong times, but it's always worth taking note of what he says. This gives him an insider's understanding of text that impels us always to give his views serious inter uh, in, um, consideration. And it's with one of his inter interpretations that I want to, want to end. It concerns the record of the transfer of uh, the book. Um, from Macdonough to O'Donnell in 1522, which I referred at the beginning of the talk and which we've been, uh, was mentioned in, in the earlier one. This entry states, Ostensibly, it bears witness to a supreme act of honesty and generosity on the part of O'Donnell, marred somewhat by the derogatory note of the scribe in reference to Macdonough. O'Curry, who was very familiar with the tradition of the late medieval uh, legal deeds and who recognised the buzzwords when he saw them, knew well that the transfers of property that are recorded in these deeds may conceal subtexts and subtleties that require uh, and sometimes elude the identification and interpretation. In this instance, O'Curry was aware that MacDonagh's father had been killed by O'Donnell's agent, Donagh O'Buil, six years earlier. And O'Curry extrapolated from that as follows in his handwritten catalogue over there. This is what he says. Thus we see that O'Donnell had the next MacDonagh completely in his power. 
and we may fairly infer that she did not allow him to escape from his grasp without extracting a suitable ransom. That this ransom was fixed at seven score mil cows, or the Book of Ballymote. And that it was more convenient to MacDonough to give the book, which of the two was more acceptable to O'Donnell. It is evident from the very circumstantial manner in which the sale of this book is related in the above note that there were some people who thought that O'Donnell did not come fairly by it. Else, why was it found necessary to say that MacDonough's sons and brothers gave their unanimous consent to the transfer? In other words, O'Donnell may never have paid 140 cows, but rather MacDonough handed over Ballymote to secure his own liberty of protection. This is O'Curry's insight into it, and it's an interpretation, I think, that has a lot going for it, and that adds, um, if true, to the already colourful history of this great book by Mahalath.